There's never been a more important time to ensure your immune system is operating at its peak. This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman with a new natural solution from Future Farm Botanicals created exclusively to help promote a better immune response. Elderberry with Zinc and Echinacea. Future Farm's Elderberry with Zinc and Echinacea is the first to combine these three powerful ingredients together. Elderberry is packed with antioxidants, vitamins, and may boost your immune system. Echinacea has been shown to activate chemicals in the body that decrease inflammation, and zinc activates T lymphocytes. Low zinc has been associated with increased susceptibility. For more information and order, call 888-841-7216. That's 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's future, P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Elderberry with zinc and echinacea is all natural, science-based, and works without adverse side effects. myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome to Intelligent Medicine. I am your host, Layla Mutin, wishing you all a happy new year. I hope it started off on the right foot for you, that you've got a good plan for health, that you've got a good plan for your goals, things that you were able to achieve in measurable steps, even in small steps, not great big giant ones that might feel overwhelming but in, in portions that you can handle. <laughs> Break down all your goals into smaller goals, into smaller portions that you can handle, that you can, that you can uh, approach each one, and it's not so overwhelming, right? These are the things we think about, that we contemplate in the new year, which is a good time of year to think about all of these things. And... We, we will be bringing you more intelligent medicine in the year 2020. So, I invite you to email me with any questions or topics of interest. And that email is radioprogram at aol.com. Again, that's radioprogram at aol.com. I've got your questions here. So, as well as some interesting news... So I've got an email from Cheryl. Cheryl writes, Hi there, I recently had some blood tests done uh, to see about why I was feeling so lousy. Well, one of those tests came up that I have higher than normal levels of mercury, lead, and arsenic. Wow, Cheryl, okay. I'm wondering, is that a blood test? Was that a urine toxic metal test? I believe the urine toxic metal test is provides a better measure. And uh, your, next, your next sentence tells me that it's probably not just a blood test, but a urine toxic metal test. You say that your doctor has suggested that you consider chelation therapy. And I wanted to ask you if that would be a good thing for me to do. A little background on Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, you said you uh, a couple of years ago you had a heart attack. You're taking aspirin. Uh, you have a, a high lipoprotein little A. You take Berlinta. Well, if your doctor is suggesting chelation therapy for you, 
uh, I'm assuming that your doctor has all of your medical history information as well as a list of your prescription medicines and your supplements, and especially from your other practitioners like your cardiologist, your internist, etc. So uh, the fact that your doctor is, is, is uh, suggesting chelation therapy, as long as he has all this medical information and knows any kind of potential interaction that chelation may have with taking something like Berlinta or the fact that you've had a heart attack or any other issues, needs to all be taken into consideration. Um, I know that uh, back when Dr. Hoffman had his full practice, he was providing uh, chelation therapy for patients, and they did very, very well for detoxing, you know, toxic metals and things like that. It's a very good idea if you have high levels of mercury, lead, and arsenic. So uh, it would be a good idea for chelation for you if you're in good health and your doctor says you're in good health and that you'd be able to tolerate chelation. What organ systems would chelation be hard on? Possibly the kidneys, but if your kidneys are in good working order, order, and your doctor determines that you could do chelation safely, then that's the way to go. The question to ask that question to is your doctor. Uh, not necessarily me, but I'm offering you my opinion, and I would just go with your doctor's instructions on that. Chelation would be a great idea if anyone is found to be high in mercury, lead, or arsenic. And this actually, I'm reminded of another question we've gotten for podcasts. Well, what do you think about oral chelation, taking chlorella, uh, taking um, other other types of oral chelating agents? They can be helpful. It may take longer for you to chelate out those toxic metals. It would not be the same as chelation therapy, which is done intravenously, where you come in one time a week or, or two times a week to have this chelation right? Done in the doctor's office where you're sitting with an IV uh, in your vein for a few hours. Uh, chelation is not a fast process. You're not there for 30 minutes with an IV in your arm. You, you want to plan to be in the doctor's office for two to three hours, generally, as I remember how we did chelation when Dr. Hoffman had his full practice. So I, th I think chelation is a wonderful idea. Uh, it's also good for coronary artery disease and calcification, you know, for the right patient uh, who could safely undergo anything like that. So we have done chelation therapy with much success, and I think it would be a great idea. And again, check with your doctor on all of that. They will let you know. So thanks, Cheryl, and best of health to you in this new year. I've got another email here from Jean. Dear Layla, your Healthy New Year podcast reminded me of something I read recently about the blue light. And right after I started filtering my laptop and TV screens, <laughs> Jean recently read something about blue light and that blue light might not be bad after all. Now, this is very interesting, and Jean, thanks for sending this to me. This was a study done out of Manchester, England, that is proposing that contrary to common belief, 
Blue light may not be as disruptive to our sleep patterns as originally thought. You've heard me talk here about blue light and to shut down your laptops and your electronic devices and don't bring your phone into the bedroom with you and keep it on the nightstand and checking up on your, your friend's Facebook statuses and all that thing during the light. You don't, you don't want all that blue light interrupting your sleep because all that blue light would disrupt the secretion of melatonin by the pineal gland. The pineal gland is in the brain somewhere there behind the eyes, but it could sense, it could detect the blue light. And the blue light tells the pineal gland, don't make melatonin, it's still daylight. It's still daylight. It's not, it's not bedtime yet. It's not time for melatonin, therefore. And that was the reason we generally give the advice that I would give the advice of shut down those electronic devices. Stop looking at your email at 10 o'clock at night. It's bedtime. And of course, I've told my patients and clients who are entrepreneurs or very, very busy uh, multitasking and doing other things or, you know, wearing a lot of hats in their lives that the only time they have to check their email or do anything is late at night when they get home. Then I will tell them, hey, get filters like Jean says she did uh, for her laptop. She's put a filter on it and for TV screens to filter out that very harsh light, right? So it doesn't adversely impact your sleep so that you'll be able to get sleep so that you will be able to secrete enough melatonin for good health and for sleep. Well, these researchers from the University of Manchester say that using dim, cooler lights in the evening, like the blue light, and bright, warmer lights in the day may be more beneficial to our health. This is very interesting. Twilight is both dimmer and bluer than daylight. And you know, twilight is at night. So twilight is both dimmer, but it's bluer than daylight, they say. And the body clock uses both of those features to determine the appropriate times to be asleep and awake. Current technologies designed to limit our evening exposure to blue light, for example, by changing the screen color on mobile devices, may therefore send us mixed messages, they say. This is because the small changes in brightness they produce are accompanied by colors that more resemble daytime. Now, this is very interesting. The research, which was carried out on mice, used specially designed lighting that allowed the team to adjust color without changing brightness. So it's not about the brightness, it's about the color is their assertion here. That showed blue colors produced weaker effects on the mouse body clock than equally bright yellow colors. So the blue colors, which are associated with twilight, showed weaker effects on the mouse body clock than equally bright yellow colors. The yellow colors are associated with daylight. The findings, say this team of researchers, have important implications for the design of lighting and visual displays intended 
to ensure healthy patterns of sleep and alertness. The study is published in the journal Current Biology, and it's funded by the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council. The body clock uses a specialized light-sensitive protein in the eye to measure brightness. This specialized light-sensitive protein in the eye is called melanospin, melanospin, which is better at detecting shorter wavelength photons. This is why, say the team, researchers originally suggested blue light might have a stronger effect. However, however, our perception of color comes from the retinal cone cells, and the new research shows that the blue color signals that they supply reduce the impact on light on the clock. So, Dr. Tim Brown from the University of Manchester said, we show the common view that blue light has the strongest effect on the clock is misguided. In fact, the blue colors that are associated with twilight have a weaker effect than the white or yellow light of equivalent brightness. Now this really changes everything. There is lots of interest in altering the impact of light on the clock by adjusting that brightness, the brightness signals detected by melanopsin. But current approaches usually do this by changing the ratio of short and long wavelength light. This provides a small difference in brightness at the expense of perceptible changes in color. We argue that this is not the best approach since the changes in color may oppose any benefits obtained from reducing the brightness signals detected by melanopsin. Our findings suggest that using dim, cooler lights in the evening and bright, warmer lights in the day may be more beneficial. Well, this kind of turns things on its head now, doesn't it? So, this is really something. Jean, thank you for bringing this to, to, to my attention here so I could share this with everybody. <clears throat> it may not be about the brightness, but maybe the blue light from our, from our uh, electronic devices may not be so bad after all. You know, I have had people tell me that their devices don't bother them. But, you know, it is a part of sleep hygiene to start turning things down and start dimming things. No matter the type of light, whether it's a warmer light or a blue light. I even tell people when it starts getting dark outside, it's time to dim the lights in the house. And I know not all of you are using those very cold blue lights that many are, are using the warmer lights that are more, more associated with daylight. It's a good idea to turn them down. And Jean, you didn't waste your money getting, you know, filtering 
screens for your laptop or your TV. I think it's still better to filter all of that. It's better for your eye health, I believe, overall. So thank you for that bit of information. Now, more to show, more to share with you. And uh, just more news because I think it's apropos to bring this up in the new year. Because we're in the year 2020, right? Well, guess what? A Harvard study says half of the population is projected to have obesity by the year 2030. That's only 10 short years from now, folks. So about half of the adult U.S. population will have obesity and about a quarter will have severe obesity by 2030. According to a new study led by Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in Boston and published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the study also predicts that in 29 states, more than half of the population will be obese and all states will have a prevalence of obesity higher than 35%. The study's researchers estimate that currently 40% of American adults have obesity and 18% have severe obesity. Obesity is a BMI over 30 and severe obesity is a BMI over 35 and 40, really over 40. That's severe. The researchers said the predictions are troubling because the health because the health and economic effects of obesity and severe obesity <coughs> pardon me take a toll on several aspects of society obesity and especially severe obesity are associated with increased rates of chronic disease and medical spending and have negative consequences for life expectancy. <clears throat> and that comes from a senior author of the study and professor of the practice of health sociology. For the study, the researchers used self-reported body mass index data from more than 6.2 million adults who participated in the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System Survey the acronym for that is BRFSS, between 1993 and the year 2016. And as you know, BMI, body mass index, is calculated by dividing a person's weight in kilograms by the square of their height in meters, okay? Or in inches, you can just, uh, uh, by a factor of two, you know, to, to the, you can double the, the inches. Obesity is defined as a BMI of 30 or higher, and severe obesity, as I said earlier, is a BMI of over 35 and higher than that. <coughs> Self-reported BMIs are frequently biased. So the researchers use novel, novel statistical methods to correct for this bias. The large amount of data collected in the BRFSS allowed the researchers to drill down for obesity rates for specific states, income levels, and subpopulations. The results showed that by 2030, 
Several states will have obesity prevalence close to 60%. It's going to be the majority. The minority will be normal weight people. Think about that. Think about that. That's flabbergasting. So, by 2030, several states will have obesity prevalence close to 60%, while the lowest states will be approaching 40%. The researchers predicted that nationally, severe obesity will likely be the most common BMI category for women, non-Hispanic black adults, and those with annual incomes below $50,000 per year. Researchers said the study could help inform state policymakers. For example, previous research suggests that sugar-sweetened beverage taxes have been an effective and cost-effective intervention for curtailing the rise in obesity rates. I've pulled this off of uh, Fullscript, our online pharmacy, and the author of, of this particular article here is Catherine Rushlau, <clears throat> and she does a lot. She's an edit, the editor for Integrative Practitioner Magazine. She does a wonderful job. Thank you, Catherine. So something to really think about going into this new decade, 2020, and to consider that by 2030, if things don't change, Things don't change. Lifestyle changes we're talking about. That we can expect normal weight people in 10 years to no longer be in the majority, but to be in the minority. And obese people to be in the majority of over 60% of the population, with severe obesity being 40%. Scary, right? Didn't want to end on such a negative note. But thank you to those who emailed me, and I invite any of you who have questions or topics of interest that you'd like to hear me talk about, that you'd hear, like, to, like me to weigh in on, email me to radioprogram at AOL.com. And I want to thank you for joining me on another edition of Layla Weighs In here on Intelligent Medicine. Do you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a vitamin B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman with a solution for low B1, Zobria by Oshare Health. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells in your feet and legs to stop functioning properly, may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to reverse these symptoms. You can get Zobria now with new lower pricing, risk-free, by going to Z-O-B-R-I-A dot com or by calling 1-855-ZOBRIA-8. That's Zobria.com or 1-855-962-7428. Get 20% off the new lower price with coupon code Hoffman at checkout plus free shipping. Zobria.com, vitamin B1 perfected. This is Layla Mutin, RD. I see patients regularly along with Dr. Hoffman. If you require a nutrition consult with me but live out of town, there's no need to travel to New York City. I have telephone consultations with clients from all over the country. Please visit drhoffman.com for more information. 
and to set up an appointment, call 212-779-1744. That's 212-779-1744. I look forward to being a collaborator in your health care.